Ho, 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 and welcome to Geeking with Destination Venus. It is the last edition of the show before Christmas, and we're going to keep it relatively tinsel-free, I'm afraid. Uh, Christmas, not my holiday. But we do have a Santa sack brimming with geeky news, views, and reviews, and we're going to start with the news. This news really changes everything. I've played the wrong jingle, really, uh, because I should really have used the Sad Spock version of this, because this isn't good news. This is depressing news. Uh, well, it's sort of good news. Um, if you've been listening for a while, you will know that Marvel have been umming and ahhing about the future of Jonathan Majors, who plays Kang the Conqueror in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, after Jonathan Majors has been arrested and prosecuted for domestic abuse. And as is so often the case with this kind of thing, although he's only been charged with one offence, as soon as he was charged, a lot of other people who claim to have suffered at his hands came forward and said, yeah, this happened to me too. I was too scared to say anything about it. And it's another one of those situations where people who were minded to do so kind of said, well, you know, if all of these claims are genuine, how come they're only saying something now? And when rational people said, really? We're going to say that all of these people are lying? Hmm. And while I don't like the there's no smoke without fire argument, there was enough to suggest that... At the very least, this guy had some work to do on himself. Uh, So who is Jonathan Majors? Well, he is an astonishingly good actor. You may have seen him at the Oscars presenting an award alongside Michael B. Jordan, late of the MCU parish, of course. You may indeed have seen him with Michael B. Jordan acting in the movie Creed 3, which I have seen. I don't really follow boxing. I don't understand boxing. I haven't seen all of the Rocky movies, but I have seen all three Creed movies, and they're all brilliant, as is he in it. He also pitched up in Loki, first of all, Loki season one, as Kang the Conqueror, uh, reappears in Loki season two as Kang the Conqueror, or one of many, that's kind of the point with Kang. And he was also, of course, in the ridiculously forgettable Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania, possibly the worst Marvel movie of the lot. Although, again, that was far from being his fault, and he's one of the best things in it. But, and this is something that a lot of people fail to recognise with an awful lot of people, just because you are very good at something, just because the thing that you're good at brings joy and pleasure to millions, and it did, does not mean that you are a good person, or that you don't have flaws, or that everything you do is fabulous. Uh, I could throw out many names here. Marlon Brando, Alfred Hitchcock, um, Mel Gibson, to name but three of the many people who have been immensely talented and who have also done terrible things which really didn't ought to be forgotten. And now Jonathan Majors is definitely on that list. He was prosecuted for domestic abuse and he has now been found guilty on one count of third-degree assault and one count of harassment. He has been acquitted of another count of assault and one aggravated harassment. 
count. So essentially, he's been found guilty of about half the things he was accused of, or at least half the things he was charged with. He's been found, he's been accused, sorry, of many other things, which he probably will never face court for. And so now Marvel and, you know, through them, Disney have had a decision to make. He hasn't been sentenced yet. Um, he faces sentencing on the 6th of February. Uh, he could receive jail time. He could get up to a year in jail. Now, this raises a number of ethical and practical questions, all of which I'm really happy I don't have to address. But nobody asked me. But this is my um, this is my take on the thing. Let's let's put the ethics to one side for a second on a practical level. Look, this is really problematic. If they keep Majors in his role as Kang and he goes to prison just on a purely practical level, that is going to have a massive impact on a shooting schedule for various Marvel projects that have already been delayed by the strikes. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the strikes were a self-inflicted wound by the studios, but nevertheless, they have to deal with the scheduling issues that that's created. And losing their star in the middle of all of that, I suspect is a problem they are not going to want to deal with. And I mentioned that first because I don't make the mistake of ever thinking that the studios are moral entities. On an ethical level, well, again, you see, I, if you believe in the possibility of rehabilitation and redemption, you simply can't say, well, he's done a bad thing, therefore he must never work again. You can't do that. But there have to be consequences, and there, you have to consider the optics of what you're doing. There will be people who say, look, this has got nothing to do with his role as Kang. He may or may not have done terrible things. Spoilers, he did terrible things in real life. But this has got nothing to do with his acting career. This has got nothing to do with his job. Yet would you fire a plumber because he had committed crimes? And if you wouldn't, then how is it fair to treat an actor in a different way? There are people, of course, who would say, but as an actor, he's a role model. And you know, a message needs to be sent that that kind of behaviour cannot be tolerated and will not be tolerated, to which other people might say, well, yeah, but he's not a role model, is he? He's playing the bad guy. So if anything, what the message that would be sent could be is this is a bad person who did bad things and you shouldn't want to be this guy. I'm not sure I can abide that one, to be honest. But, you know, it's an argument that can be made. So we'll, we'll toss it into the mix and consider it. And then, of course, there is the ultimate ethical stance, which is, no, no, we have standards. We have expectations of behaviour and we will not work with people who fall below a certain standard because we are taking a moral view of that behaviour. Now, I suspect that that is the line that Disney say they are taking because they have dropped Jonathan Majors, they are not going to work with him anymore. This is a decision I think I probably support. I am not happy to see somebody who is guilty of the crime that he has been convicted of doing being promoted in that way. I'm not saying he should never act again. 
I am saying major roles in multi-billion dollar franchises. Yeah, maybe that's not the reward we want to give people who have behaved like that, particularly when they are unrepentant and unremorseful for that behavior. I think I think there is a line that you have to draw. Now, have Disney drawn that line? I refer you back to the practical considerations. I'm not sure Disney have drawn that line. I think actually Disney have made two calculations. The first is that if he does go to prison, that's going to mess up their shooting schedules and they can't afford that. And I think they've also thought if they don't drop him, there will be a sizable portion of an audience who says, I don't want to go and see that guy. And that this might well impact on their bottom line, which is ultimately what executives at Disney actually care about. In short, because I'm wearing my cynical head, I suspect that Disney are making what I would consider to be the right decision for the wrong reasons. Does that matter if the right decision is being made? Actually, I think it does. Because the problem here isn't necessarily Jonathan Majors. The problem here is the attitude of the studios who have previously turned blind eyes to this kind of behaviour if it suited their bottom line and who are now, I think, only addressing this kind of behaviour because it might affect their bottom line. So we'll watch we'll watch this one with interest. It's not only Disney who is um, no longer working with majors. Uh, the US Army has decided that it no longer wishes to use Jonathan Majors as the face and the narrator of two of its major recruitment ads, um, one of which launched at the um, NCAA's March Madness College Basketball Tournament, which apparently is a big thing. Uh, the Army has released a statement saying that they were aware of Major's arrest and was deeply concerned by the allegations. Um, they were very clear that Major's was innocent until proven guilty, but that they were putting their ads away until the investigation was complete. And of course, now he's been convicted, those ads will not be returning. Um, the fashion house Valentino uh, has decided he's not going to be fronting them anytime soon. Uh, the Major League Baseball team, the Texas Rangers, has also dropped majors from their ad campaigns. Um, and there are other film and TV projects uh, that he will now not be associated with. Uh, and um, the Gotham Film Media Institute board uh, and its Sydney Potier initiative has said that majors will be stepping away from that as well. And that shows a little bit, a little bit of maturity, perhaps, on Major's part, if he is stepping away and he's not actually being pushed away, because he must understand that his association with a non-profit like that is probably not helping them right now. All things considered, it's a very ugly and unpleasant thing, which I wish was not happening. In a sidebar, it's also once again shone a light on the less pleasant sides of fandom. There have been quite a lot of voices online on places like 4chan and Reddit and, well, yes, Twitter too, uh, that have been basically saying, look, it's really bad if people have been assaulted, but let's be honest, bruises heal and we want our stories. I'm paraphrasing and I'm simplifying, but that's basically it. And yeah, I, 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 it bothers me that there are people in geekdom who think like that. But I guess we did always know they were there. So, you know, there's that.
Oh, elsewhere, I did say I was going to avoid Elon Musk, but there's some breaking news and I sort of got to cover it. Um, Twitter is in trouble again. Well, X is in trouble again. Uh, the EU is very unhappy with them. The European Commission thinks that Twitter might be in breach of EU law, not rules, not regulations, EU law regarding uh, the dissemination of misinformation and hate speech. Uh, this is, well, not that unlikely, actually, given the um, the leaning that Musk has taken Twitter down. So uh, we will watch to see if anything happens there. Uh, in theory, at least, this could lead to Twitter being turned off in the EU, which, well, would that kill Twitter? I suppose it wouldn't, really. I'm not sure that Musk cares that much about Europe. So as with so many other things, we will watch and see what happens. And uh, honestly, all the ash to the news is really depressing and it's Christmas, so I'm not doing depressing. We're going to leave that there. This news really changes everything. And yes, I just did the full-length jingle twice because it's Christmas and you deserve it. Moving on, shall we go and take a look at what's going on in... Well, it's been a busy year in space, but it's also been a busy few weeks. And there are some news stories that I think it's important to jump on board. Uh, and the first thing that's really, really important to jump on board as far as news stories go about space is the UK Space Agency, because such a thing exists, uh, has provided funding uh, for launch at the Saxon Vord spaceport and the Sutherland spaceport. If you are a geek of a certain vintage, you will recall that Dan Dare and his associated star pilot would launch from Formby Sands. Uh, well, that's not going to happen. But UK rockets are going to be flying possibly from Shetland. Uh, two companies have secured uh, a little over 6.7 million quid to develop their launch technologies in a sustainable way and to, and this is in heavy air quotes, help cement the UK's position as Europe's leading destination for commercial space flight activities. I'm just going to underline something that I've said many times before, which is that the UK is a ridiculous place to launch rockets from if you're going to go for low Earth orbit. You want to be on the equator, and if you want to be launching rockets in Europe, which in a place that is this densely populated, again, is not a hugely great idea, but if you're going to be launching rockets from the ground in Europe, Spain, possibly Italy, or Greece are really good places to do it in terms of getting things off the ground. Now, the reason you don't do it is because... If something goes wrong, if you're launching west to east, which is the direction you tend to launch things from for sort of maximum benefit in terms of orbital dynamics, I'm not going to go into the reasons why we talked about it before. I may do another thing on this later, but just trust me, it's best to launch west to east. If you do that from Spain or Italy or Greece or France, any of the places in Europe that are on the equator, um, you're flying over land and you don't want to launch rockets over land because they're basically massive ex explosive -y things. If something goes wrong and they crash, if you've launched them from the equator in Europe, you're 
the chances of hitting a populated area and wiping out potentially maybe thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people, then they're higher than I'd prepared to risk, basically. One of the reasons America does so well in launch sites is if you launch from Florida and you launch west to east, as they do, then you're launching out over the Atlantic Ocean. If something goes wrong, you hit fish. And if you're SpaceX and you're launching from southern Texas, you're launching out over the Gulf of Mexico. So again, if something goes wrong, you hit fish or Florida. Either way, I'm not entirely sure people are that bothered. Launching from the very far north, which is what we're proposing to do, um, from Shetland and Sutherland, both of which are very much north, is it, it's putting them into a fairly niche market for launch vehicles, to be honest. But that market may well exist. So what's actually happening? Well, a, a company called Hylimpulse, um, which is working with the Saxe Vord spaceport in Unst on Shetland, and another company called OX, which is working with the Sutherland spaceport on the uh, Amon Peninsula, each are going to get a little bit over three million quid to fund their space flight activities from these two UK spaceports. Minister for Space at the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology, a certain Andrew Griffith MP, uh, says, We want the UK to become Europe's leading destination for small satellite launches, building on our expertise in satellite design. Now, that's actually moderately sensible in that we are a world leader in the design of small satellites. CubeSats basically were developed by Surrey Satellite Technologies, and CubeSats into particular orbits are something that could well be successfully launched from the north of Britain. Scotland, if we're honest. Um, now, I'm not entirely convinced about this. I'm not convinced that ballistic rockets from the ground are the best way to do this. I actually rather like the idea of launching this kind of satellite from altitude from a plane. Now, I know that when Virgin Orbital, or whatever they were calling it themselves, tried this, they failed. But they were using fairly clapped out equipment, if we're honest, and Virgin don't have the best record in space. I think that there are ways of doing that. Now, I've said before, I would actually favour uh, Doncaster, Doncaster Sheffield, uh, Robin Hood Airport, as a location for launching small satellites into orbit because it's got a huge runway. Seriously, they could have landed the space shuttle on it if they'd wanted to. And so it can take massive planes. So you could fly large planes from Doncaster. It's not like it's being used as a commercial airport particularly. So it wouldn't be interfering with commercial traffic, commercial passenger traffic. You could fly large aircraft from that runway carrying rockets, which could then be launched over the North Sea uh, into all kinds of orbits. Or you could even fly further south than that, and you could fly, you could launch them over the Atlantic, you could launch them over the Mediterranean, there's all kinds of things you could do. But, that said, um, I, did, I do think it's worth exploring this. Um, certainly Highlands and Islands Enterprise um, argue that the Sutherland spaceport will support around 600 jobs um, throughout the wider highlands and islands, which is you know, pretty good. And this is a region of the UK that really needs good, high-paying, technological jobs. 
Um, Orbex, which is launched, uh, sorry, based in Forres near Inverness, they're going to get 3.3 million to undertake activities to ensure that it's environmentally sustainable. And I think that's also important. Um, Orbex is going to be looking uh, into uh, green propellant to manufacture a clean propane uh, produced from renewable stocks like uh, plant and vegetable waste material. Um, they're aiming that the Sutherland spaceport will be the first carbon neutral spaceport in the world, both in operation and construction. And again, that matters. If we're going to get massively into space, and I think we're going to have to, then making sure that we're not going to destroy the planet in the process is kind of important. And a lot of ballistic rocket technology at the moment is not great for the environment. SpaceX, for example, um, their Raptor engines use methane, which is a hideous greenhouse gas. So while I'm not particularly worried about that, given SpaceX's current launch schedules, if these things became routine, if we were launching hundreds of these things a, a month, which, you know, in his wilder ideas, Musk kind of says, yeah, well, let's do that. That would actually be bad. So obviously I will keep you posted on the UK's first properly likely foray into space. Not the first rockets that the UK have launched. We, we launched the Black Knight from Woomera in Australia all those years ago. But for all kinds of reasons, including national security, it would be quite nice to have a UK-based launch capability. I'm not sure this is the way to go, but it's the way we're going. So, as I say, we'll keep you informed. And while we're on the subject of space, uh, we're going to stay in Europe because ESA, the European Space Agency, has approved the preliminary design review of a mission that will study the atmosphere composition of about a thousand exoplanets, which always blows my mind. It, it blows my mind that we found over a thousand exoplanets. The idea that we could study their atmospheres from here is mind boggling. But there you go. That's science for you. Um, Aerial stands for the Atmospheric Remote Sensing Infrared Exoplanet Large Survey Spacecraft. Um, and Airbus have put together a design which has been approved by ESA, which has granted uh, Airbus a 200 million euro contract to develop the spacecraft with its launch being scheduled for 2029. So about five years. And uh, Airbus don't just make airlines. They, they have actually got some good track record here. Uh, they built ESA's Gaia uh, and Cheops space ob observatories. Um, Cheops, I think, is still functioning. I don't think Gaia is. Um, now, this is planned to be a four-year mission to help scientists, well, and anybody else who cares to know, actually, how exoplanets have formed and evolved. Um, Christopher Gabilan, uh, a, a project manager at Airbus on the aerial project, um, has said in an official release, observations of these worlds will give us insights into the early stages of planetary and atmospheric formation and their subsequent evolution. This will, in turn, contribute to the understanding of our own solar system and could help us find out whether there is life elsewhere in our universe and if there is another planet like Earth. Um, which is true but disingenuous, I think. Um, I, I regret that they always try and justify this kind of mission by saying, well, we might find life and... I, well, we might, but we won't. And even if we do, 
that shouldn't be the only reason for doing this stuff. I know life in on other worlds is 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 a sexy subject, but actually this is science that's worth doing just for its own sake. It's about expanding our envelope of knowledge, which I genuinely think is a good thing. And I think it's something that scientists should be unapologetic about. But for now, the launch date is a good five years away. So I will keep an eye on the project and I will keep you informed. Uh, I, I guarantee you it will slip because ESA projects always do. It's still good to know about. And uh, so we will see again how that pans out. In the meantime, time to move on. You know, I am never getting bored of that jingle. Not ever. And look at that, we're nearly halfway through the show and I haven't mentioned Doctor Who once. And I'm still not going to. Oh, I just did. Never mind. Anyway, let's move on and um, take a look at the world of... Science. Well, quite a lot's been happening since the last science thing, and yet here I am still talking about Elon flipping Musk. This is not to do with SpaceX or Tesla or Twitter. You'll be very pleased to know. This is to do with Musk's even more ridiculous Bond villain-esque scheme, and that is Neuralink. On the face of it, Neuralink is a really noble idea. The idea is to create a chip that can be put into your brain that will carry signals that your nervous system can't. So, for example, if you have certain kinds of paralysis, a Neuralink chip will, it is suggested, that's certainly the plan, enable you to walk because the chip will carry the signals. Musk has made other claims for what Neuralink will be able to allow you to do. Um, all of which seem like science fiction, you know, sort of the idea that you might be able to sort of connect your consciousness to a computer and do sort of um, electronic telepathy almost. I, to be honest, do you know what? If they pull this off, I don't see why that couldn't be a thing that could be achieved. But, but you know, like like so many of Musk's ideas, it sounds like pure science fiction, but it also doesn't sound like a stupid idea on paper. Yeah, if it can be made to work. But... It's, well, it's Musk, isn't it? And his philosophy, for good or ill, and in this case, ill, apparently, but for good or ill, Musk's philosophy has always been move fast and break things. And that's, do you know what? That's fine when you're dealing with code. But here we're not dealing with code. Neuralink is being tested on animals. Now, I don't want to get into the animal testing debate. I am generally against it but you know i've lost family members to rare diseases and to be brutally frank if animal experimentation had produced a cure for any of the people i've lost to aforementioned rare conditions honestly i might well have tortured the guinea pig myself but you know that's a it's impossible to be binary here, but if, if you're going to do animal experimentation, it has to be done with the utmost care and with every protocol in place to treat the animals in question as humanely as possible. I am not completely persuaded, but I, I will acknowledge that I could be persuaded that the benefits that a Neuralink type device might bring might actually justify 
a level of animal experimentation. Uh, I'm not convinced about that, but as I say, I've got an open mind here. I'm not a, a, a total ban all animal experiments kind of guy. Sorry if that disappoints anybody. But here, I think we have a real problem because the move fast and break things philosophy simply doesn't lend itself to the humane treatment of your animal subjects. And here we're talking about primates. We're talking about you know, animals that are definitely sentient, animals that definitely feel emotion and pain. And what some of them have been subjected to sounds an awful lot like torture to me. More than that, they have been experimented to death a lot. The, the, the statistics are vaguely, well not vaguely, they're extraordinarily chilling with reports of in excess of 1,500 animals dying during the testing process. Uh, that's becoming very difficult to justify on any kind of level. Now, there's been some attempt by Musk to justify this. Um, one of his claims is, oh, but we were only experimenting on monkeys that were dying anyway, as though that makes it okay. And I'm not sure it does, you know. So there is going to be an investigation into the activities at Neuralink. Uh, it's at a federal level in the US. And so there could be uh, quite serious implications here for Neuralink as a company. If they are found to have breached animal welfare laws, then that could, I don't think it will, but it could lead to the shutting down of the entire program. Um, this investigation is coming at the same time as there's an awful lot of employee unhappiness, audible employee, uh, employee unhappiness, about the kind of animal testing that Neuralink is doing, and uh, complaints that pressure from Musk himself to accelerate development has resulted in a, a number of botched experiments. Um, Reuters, the news agency, have done a review of dozens of Neuralink documents and interviews with more than 20 current, form, uh, current and former employees. Um, and there seems to be a real body of evidence showing that um, yeah, botched failed tests have had to be repeated in in increasing the number of animals involved in testing, increasing the number of animal deaths, and increasing the levels of animal suffering. Uh, the company documents also include um, previously unreported messages, audio recordings, emails, and all that kind of thing. Um, this is very serious. Um, a spokesman for the uh, USDA inspector general de declined to comment. Um, and U.S. regulations don't actually specify how many animal companies can use in research. And there is quite a lot of leeway to, to, that scientists have in the U.S. Uh, to determine when and how to use animals in experiments. As I understand it, the, um, the, the framework there is significantly more lax than it is in the U.K. or the E.U. Um, huge, huge surprise there. Um, the figures, though, are, you know, we're looking at 280 sheep pigs and monkeys um, following experiments since 2018, uh, according to records reviewed by Reuters, 
uh, and sources with direct knowledge of the company's animal testing op operations. Um, it's also say that is uh, a, a sort of rough estimate because Neuralink isn't even keeping precise records. Um, and obviously, you know, there's been experimentation on like the usual sort of lab rats and mice and that kind of thing. Now, total number of animal deaths does not necessarily indicate that Neuralink is in any way uh, in breach of regulations or even in breach of standard research practices. Uh, a lot of companies, particularly in the US, use animals in experiments uh, and yeah, particularly when there's financial pressure to quickly bring products to market. So it's, it's just not looking good. There, there seems to be a lot. I'm, I'm not going to go deep into all of the report here. Uh, there's a very good article in The Guardian. Um, if you just Google uh, Neuralink animal testing, Elon Musk investigation, uh, you'll probably find The Guardian article, which gives quite a lot of information uh, on this. It's, it's not a good look, um, particularly when you know, Tesla is also not in a particularly good space. Um, we've spoken about X on the show already this week. It's just not good enough. And it does all seem to track back to Musk's famous impatience. He simply will not give scientists and engineers and researchers the time they need to do the job properly. And I don't know what we do about that, apart from stop giving billionaires this amount of power. But that's beyond the remit of the show. Uh, and I'm depressed now, so we're not going to talk about science anymore either. So let's talk about something more fun. Let's do some reviews. Shall we do some reviews? I think we should do some reviews. Um, well, I'm pleased to report that I have completed my uh, my now annual, I think it's the third annual viewing of um, Hawkeye. This has become something of a Christmas tradition for me and uh, for many other people, I know. And I'm very pleased to report that although it's a lot shorter than I remember it, it still holds up, doesn't it? Really, really good. It... it it, I, it captures the essence of the the version of Hawkeye that I like, and also captures Kate Bishop perfectly. Haley Stanfield is so good in this role. I really, really hope we get a chance to see her again. The 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 little thing at the end of Ms. Marvel suggests that we might, but just more like this, Disney. Just more like this. Uh, just forget about Jonathan Majors, forget about Kang, and just give us more like this. Make TV shows that are more like the comics, and I think you'll be all right. Uh, so that's that. If you have Disney+, Plus, I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you've never seen it, it's it's exactly right for Christmas. It leans very hard into the um, Matt Fraction, um, Jonathan Aja, um Hawkeye, my life as a weapon, kind of of vibe. Uh, it, it's it's deeply rooted in the comics, and it's just it's just great. It's just brilliant. Give it a, give it a go. Um, I have started watching Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which has just arrived on Disney Plus, uh, and I think probably honestly the less said about that the better. I don't hate it. it. It's no Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I will give it that, but honestly, it's lacking quite a lot and 
the the CGI they've used to de-age Harrison Ford for the bits at the beginning is is just a little bit too uncanny valley and it's a little bit too much. I think they would have less would have been more there. I think we've got an awful lot of lingering shots on a a computerized de-aged Harrison Ford that we could have managed without. And we would have spent a lot less time looking at dodgy CGI and that would have been better is is essentially my entire review of of Dial of Destiny. The plot, utter bobbins. Uh, but actually, you don't really watch Indiana Jones for the plot, do you? It's 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 all about character. Harrison Ford is definitely still indie. He's still got it. Uh, it's a little bit more jarring seeing John Reese davis playing an Egyptian than it used to be. Uh, I suppose that is a legacy of the 80s. I don't suppose there's much we could have done about that. Um, so, yeah. Nah. Nah. I, I, I may not even get to the end, uh, which I'm sad about. But there you are. So let's talk about something that I am enjoying, shall we? Um, season two of Reacher has dropped on Amazon Prime. If you have Amazon Prime, and you probably do, I cannot recommend Reacher highly enough. Um, if you don't know the character, he, he's it, the series is based on the book series by Lee Child, um, featuring retired U.S. Major Reacher, who is well. I guess the premise for Reacher really is what if, right, what if Sherlock Holmes had the body of Conan the Barbarian and was really highly trained in special forces combat techniques and marksmanship? That's that's basically the premise of Reacher. Uh, Jack Reacher, the central character here, uh, was a US Army major. He is now retired, honourably discharged from the army, where he was... Well, essentially a military policeman. I don't think they actually refer to him as an MP, but that seems to be what he was. And he he was, in the army, the leader of a team of special investigators who investigated particularly difficult or important crimes for the army. And now, as a civilian, he's kind of checked out. He's a drifter. He just wanders from place to place, living off his army pension. He was a major, so he... He gets paid pretty well. And he sort of deals with tr- trouble and stuff as he finds it. In season one, uh, I'm, I'm not going to spoiler it, but he he walks into a town uh, in, I think it's in Alabama, called Margrave, and um, gets embroiled in a murder mystery there, which he is initially a suspect in. That's not a spoiler. He gets arrested for the murder in the first two or three minutes of episode one of season one and yeah he obviously helps them solve it and very much it's a detective show with explosive violence and season two is much the same season two his team of investigators now all of them civilians most of them working as um investigators and contractors in some form or other uh, are in sort of all being killed off and he gets involved to try and find out why now, I've seen this show criticised for being a show about a big man who solves all his problems by being bigger than everybody else. And there is an element of that. It's certainly there are several situations that Reacher solves by turning them into physical confrontations, which are over very quickly because he is bigger than everybody else. Uh, the man is built like a bear. But 
there is a very cerebral element to the storylines and the plot lines, which I really, really, really like. Alan Richardson, who also played Hawk in the, the Titans show, uh, plays Reacher. Um, he is hilariously actually given Alan, Alan Richard is massive and hilariously, therefore, three inches too short, technically, to play Reacher. He was supposed to be 6'6 in the books. Um, Richardson is 6'3. I think they might have cast some short people to make him look even bigger than he is because he certainly looks massive in the show. And his physical presence is very effective. But Alan Richard gives him a, a real sense of humanity. And because of the way Reacher is, yeah, his idiosyncrasies, his loner persona, his, you know, like there's a running, well, not really a running gag, but a running thing. He buys his clothes in thrift stores. He doesn't own a phone. You know, he hitchhikes everywhere or takes the bus. You know, he, he doesn't really own anything. But there, there would have been a temptation to play the character as though he was on a spectrum somewhere and Richard doesn't do that Richard plays him as just a guy who can't be bothered with people which is a subtle difference but an effective one and it gives the performance the sense that this is a character who is always a bit of an outsider but not someone who can't relate to people he just chooses not to do so and there are some stellar performances from other members of the cast in season two uh the big bad is actually played by um robert patrick of terminator 2 fame he even managed to get a sarah connor joke in there so very much uh, would recommend uh, and also just because i've mentioned in passing that it's not been the best few months here at uh, venusian towers so uh, i've been looking for some comfort tv and Again, on Disney Plus, I have started rewatching Castle, which I'm enjoying immensely. I'd forgotten how good it was. Um, Nathan Fillion, obviously, is always good value, but the rest of the cast are also great. Everybody knows what kind of show this is, and they all play their parts beautifully. Um, and the plots are genuinely little Fabergé eggs. They're, they're really quite intricate and perfectly formed in their tiny little 45-minute blocks. Really nicely done. And I'd also forgotten how many Firefly and Serenity references they managed to shoehorn into that show. So again, if you have Disney Plus and you're looking just for some very undemanding, very comfortable, entertaining telly, uh, I'd, I'd give Castle a go. Well, sorry to interrupt. Um, who says nothing ever happens at Christmas? Breaking news, folks. And um, from the geek point of view, it's not particularly great news. It has been announced that Warner Brothers Discovery, owners of, amongst other things, DC Comics, and Paramount, owners of, amongst other things, Star Trek, are in merger talks. Um, the deal would see the owner of the DC Comics and HBO and all of those kind of channels that have been, how can we put this, butchered recently, um, would team up uh, it's unclear whether it's a takeover per se. Um, certainly the term that's being used at the moment is team up with uh, Paramount, uh, who not they don't just do Star Trek, obviously. Uh, they do CBS News. They do um, Mission Impossible. 
but they do other things. It would bring two of Hollywood's big five studios together. Um, they have a combined market value uh, of around $38 billion. That's about 30 billion quid. Um, it may be that a deal won't happen. Things are in the early stages and we can but hope. But Warner Chief David Zaslov, uh, who is eh, a universal hate figure, to be honest, amongst creatives, certainly. Uh, this is the guy who cancelled the Batgirl movie after it was finished. Uh, and uh, this is the guy who pulled the Warner Brothers Wile E. Coyote movie and wrote them off as tax dodgers, essentially. Um, but that guy and the Paramount boss, uh, Bob Backish, uh, discussed a possible deal over lunch in New York this week. They're blaming streaming. Uh, I think that is them trying to excuse their ridiculous arrogance. Uh, basically what's happened is that both companies have lost a bucket load on streaming. Uh, Paramount isn't making a lot of money with Paramount+. Plus. HBO is struggling in the streaming um, sort of ecosphere that we've got now. And what they've basically tried to do is take on Netflix and Amazon Prime at their own game. And frankly, they've lost. And now they are committing to deep, deep, deep cost cutting to try and minimise the losses that they basically caused. Um, the stock price of both companies continues to be trade. And I love the BBC says that they, they, the stock prices are trading well below their highs in the early days of streaming um, because people have seen them for what they are. They don't believe these people are good at running companies and the market is taking its money. Uh, the chief executives allegedly uh, discussed how each of companies' main streaming service, uh, Paramount Plus and HBO Max, or just Max as it is now, could take on Netflix and Disney Plus better working together. It is suggested that Warner Brothers um, is in a, a better cash position, partly due to some shrewd mergers. Uh, I think mostly actually due to the Barbie movie, but again, we'll move on. All things considered, I think this has to be regarded as bad news. Monopolies are a bad thing. Diversity is always, always better in the creative sphere. And if this were to go ahead, the big five would become the big four and there would be less competition amongst the big studios. Now, that might, I suppose, encourage a situation where smaller studios started to come up through. But... It's very clear, very, very, very clear that certainly Zazav is not particularly interested in doing anything good culturally. He's not interested in good creativity. All that matters to him is his company's increasingly fragile bottom line. And he will absolutely go to the lowest common denominator and produce the cheapest dross that he can get away with in order to try and make some profit. Now, I don't necessarily blame him for that. He's a business guy, not a creative guy. His job is to maximise revenues. I understand that. That doesn't mean I have to like it. And it certainly doesn't mean I can't consider it to be a very 
very bad thing. And I, I guess this brings us back to a thing we haven't really discussed in terms of geekery for a while now. And that is how we pay for the entertainment that we love. Making stuff for any screen, big or small, is expensive. And somebody has to pay for that. Advertising is increasingly not doing the job. The environment has changed. Subscription services are not going to do the job. People don't want to pay for Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and Paramount Plus and HBO Max and Hulu and all the other things. People just... Well, it's not even that people don't want to fork out for all of those streaming services at once. They can't afford to. And so that's not going to work. And it's at times like this I worry for the BBC. Because, honestly, this might be a lefty thing for me to think, but come on, guys, you know me well enough by now. After the NHS, the BBC is the second best thing we ever did as a nation. It is currently funded effectively by a subscription fee. Uh, We fork out, for the privilege of owning a television, uh, we fork out, what is it now, 150-something quid a year? which always feels like a lot when you pay it, but is, you know, it's buttons, really. And for that, you get everything the BBC does. The BBC is massively unpopular in government circles, and actually losing the love of the public too, uh, for a number of reasons, some of which are self-inflicted, I would have to say. And so it seems likely that the BBC are going to lose that funding at some point in the not terribly distant future. The BBC is over 100 years old now, and um, I think it would be massively optimistic to assume it's going to stay around for the next 100 years without radical, radical change. And I think in the light of all of this, we have to start thinking about not just the BBC, but how we fund all of this stuff. Because I think what these talks between Warner Discovery and Paramount are suggesting is that business, the capitalist system, can't deliver what we want. If we want great TV shows, if we want brilliantly creative stuff, if we want high quality documentaries, all of those things that as geeks we love, Business ain't going to deliver that anymore. It can't. The money isn't going to be there. At the same time, subscription services are, again, losing their charm. So how are we going to do this? I don't have an answer. I really don't have an answer. I don't know what I would do if I was in charge. I'm glad, frankly, that I'm not. But we do have to start thinking about it. Not just what do we want, but what are we prepared to pay for it? Because ultimately, what we're prepared to pay for it is going to very firmly control what it is we can have. And on that cheery thought, I will hand you back to your previously scheduled programming. And actually, not unrelated to all of that, one area where advertising does still seem to be able to fund content, and where content is still of a very high standard, mostly, is podcasting and radio. 
it used to be massively expensive to do stuff for broadcast. And well, it still is if you're going to broadcast it. But the advent of the internet and the ability to distribute over the internet has really democratised spoken word and music, as the existence of podcasts and this very radio station would attest. So, in the last couple of minutes of the last proper episode of the year, what's good? What's going on? Uh, well, I am going to point you at a couple of podcasts that I really enjoy. Uh, the first is an interview podcast that I don't think I've recommended before. It's called Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum, of course, uh, played Lex Luthor in the Smallville TV show in the early 2000s. Uh, he hasn't done that for a while, of course, because Smallville hasn't been made for ages. And in this podcast, he talks to famous people about stuff, and it's surprisingly insightful. A recent subject on the show, for example, has been Alan Richer, who plays Reacher on the Reacher TV show. And that was a, a, a really remarkable interview, uh, talking to this guy who, you know, as I say, he looks like Conan the Barbarian was chiselled out of granite. But the discussion got onto all kinds of things about mental health and the fact that Richard is somebody with bipolar disorder and how he manages that and you know how he channels those experiences into his role. It's a fascinating discussion. As I'd very much recommend that. He gets some great, great guests. I've mentioned word balloon before, but I'll keep banging on about it. Uh, if you've got any interesting comics whatsoever... Uh, Word Balloon with Jonathan Suntries is something that you should be listening to. Uh, he gets all the guests that I wish I could get, basically. Uh, anyone who's anyone in comics has been on Word Balloon more than once. So that's definitely one I would point in your direction. But something that I particularly love about podcasts in particular is the way they can be used to tell stories. And to that end, I would point you at a couple of Feeds. Uh, the first one would be Scott Sigler, who I have recommended before. He's a sci-fi horror author who really got got his career going by podcasting his work way, way back in the early 2000s. He's one of the original podcasters. He has, uh, he has a very unique voice, uh, and his stories are... I'm not going to say they're deeply rooted in science, but the science in them is good. He gets a lot of advice from people. Uh, and I very much enjoy his work. Uh, also, there's a podcast about a team of... What would you call them? Demonologists? Not really. Um, a, t a team of paranormal fighters from the Vatican called Book Burners, which is absolutely brilliant. Loved, loved, loved that show. Uh, it's on its fourth season now. Uh, so there's a lot to be going at if you are new to it. Uh, it's consistently good. Um, not Monster of the Week type stuff. Uh, there are running themes running through the narratives. Uh, but action-packed, high-paced stories. So look for those wherever fine pods are casted. And do you know what? We're going to knock it on the head there, I think, for this week. Next week will be something a little different. Um, I can't promise festive. I never promise festive. Uh, but we'll be back. Uh, in the meantime, I'd like to thank everybody for listening throughout the year, uh, for all the feedback we've had, for all the suggestions we've had. Um, I joke that I don't understand why anybody listens to this, but you do, and I'm forever grateful for it. So thank you all. So we'll be back 
after the bells have jingled. And we look forward to seeing you then. Until we do. Be kind to yourself, particularly at this time of year. Be kind to everybody else, because it is Christmas. And above all else, stay geeky. We're going to leave you with one of the very few Christmas songs I actually like. And I'd like to take this opportunity to wish every single one of you a very Merry Christmas. We'll see you soon. Get me deserve